0: Good morning again everybody. Welcome uh, to those of you with us online. Again, just to acknowledge your presence as well. If you'd like to connect or be prayed for, there's a, a chat feature there. There's a host that uh, is, is there. If you're with us live, if you're uh, with us on demand after the fact, send us an email. Let us know how we can serve you and support you and pray for you. And then in person again, some of us will be gathered around down in this area if we can chat a little bit afterwards. Uh, we would uh, enjoy doing that very much quick word about uh, Easter and baptism specifically. We're going to do uh, uh, baptisms on Easter this uh, year. We're about three weeks away from that. And this is something that we've had some uh, great success with in previous years. And so we're going to go back to something we've not done in several years, which is on the day that we acknowledge the movement of Christ, the transition from um, death to life in his life, we're going to also symbolically describe that spiritual reality in our lives as we transition from the deadness of of kind of our existence, our sinful existence, into this new life and this promise, the grace of Christ that's come our way. And there's no greater way to do that, to demonstrate that testimony than baptism, a timeless tradition in the Church of Jesus, one of our great uh, traditions and sacraments here. So Easter is the next opportunity for that. If you have any questions about baptism, we're going to do a prep class as soon as This service is over. It'll take place in the Fireside Room. Pastor Jeremy will be there this time, and he would like to walk you through uh, some of the logistics and answer any questions you have. If you uh, attend a baptism prep, that's not a I'm committed, but this is just our way of helping you decide if this is your next step. So maybe give that a a shot afterwards. And if you are online, there's an online version of this coming up as well. But just check that out, Baptism on Easter. It's going to be a great, great weekend. All right, let's go to our our series from the Minor Prophets. Um, Minor Prophets, if, if that's an unfamiliar term to you, Um, major prophets, I guess, is another thing that you find in the Old Testament. Now, the the major prophets are the big boys, if you will, Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah. They're kind of the the big dogs of the Old Testament when it comes to the prophetic literature. But there's these smaller players, these bit players, the fourth liners, the role players, the, the type that don't get a lot of ice time or air time. And we're diving into some of these texts that are hardly ever read or hardly ever talked about. I've never done a message on the prophet we're going to cover this weekend. I'm going to talk about Zephaniah today. And I'm curious to know, I I did this last night, uh, how many of you can recall hearing a message on Zephaniah or you can recall reading it and you feel like you have some sense of what this little book is all about? Any show of hands? A couple, like about six or eight. Last night, zero, which tells you that this congregation, probably a little bit more spiritually mature than <laughs> this Saturday night. We'll edit that out, guys, by the way, because, um, yeah, anyway, I shouldn't have said that. Uh, but yeah, thank you for those of you who uh, sense you know this just a little bit. Uh, it's, I, again, I've never really studied this before this week. Uh, it's not a long uh, version of not a long, not a lot of content, three short chapters. The average person can probably read Zephaniah in about 10 minutes. And if you were to try to sort of ascertain the, the main point, it's not the easiest to find. But I think I, I found it. There's some consensus around that most people think that the main issue is complacency. Apathy is another word that you might use there, but there seems to be complacency. That seems to be what the prophet is really uh, going after. So prophets call out sin. That's their role. Uh, Prophetic works are not so much predictive, but they're calling out truth. They're calling people to repentance. And so what's concerning Zephaniah is complacency in Israel, complacency in Jerusalem, So let me show you an example of what he is poking at, and I think this kind of is the main idea here. Here it is from chapter one. At that time, the prophet says, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. Now, he's speaking for God. So think of this as, as again, the voice of the prophet, but he's representing God. So God is searching the community with lamps, with a, a flashlight, looking into the nooks and crannies. And... He's going to, here's the big idea, punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. So you got people thinking, you know, God doesn't care. We'll just sort of do what we want. So that's the warning about complacency. And he calls it, like wine left for the dregs or left on the dregs. Depending on how familiar you are with wine uh, and its properties, this illustration may mean more to you than others. Uh, Wine has sort of a life, if you know wine. If it sits too long after being opened, it, it goes bad. It gets stale. If it uh, sits for a long time after you open it, there might even be sediment that begins to form, and it gets kind of thick and can start to smell a little bit bad, especially if you're talking about unfiltered wines or or natural wines. Now, this would be especially common in the ancient world where you don't have, you know, really uh, classically, you know, aged bottles and things like that that we have so wine if it's neglected not poured out not aerated not kept fresh becomes thick and rotten and the prophet says there's a price to play to pay for your complacency and that is you might get thick and stinky and rotten that's really the comparison that's being made and again when people think about you know why we don't look at these texts very often well it's because of stuff like this. I mean, it's, it's very pointed. It, it's pretty, you know, kind of cuts to the quick here a little bit. These works of the Old Testament can be difficult. There's lots of metaphor, but they're really judgy and they're really aggressive. And they're warnings. And most of us don't like warnings. We ignore lots of warnings. There's warning labels on the visor of my little truck to talk about, don't do this. I I ignore that kind of stuff. We ignore warning signs all the time. We we have outdoor products or things we use around our house. There's labels on there that warning, don't do. Oh, we just ignore that stuff. Uh, We don't like being told what to do. We see a sign that says, stay off the ice. Some of us are like, I'm going on there because I don't like to be told what to do. We don't like warnings. We don't like being told what to do and what not to do. Or sometimes we read these texts and we think, well, this is not my issue. Surely this, this is for somebody else. I, I, I hope so-and-so reads this text. Well, despite how you react to this kind of stuff, I'm, I'm here to tell you that in Zephaniah, this little, little book here, there's just one warning after another. And I want to encourage you, don't think this is for somebody else. The scriptures as well as history, are filled with examples of warnings gone unheeded. A lot of tragedies, train wrecks, disasters, failures, bridge washouts, and crashes, and train wrecks have occurred because somebody didn't heed the warning signs. We don't like them. Try not to have your resistance up this morning. So... Let me let you up for air for a second here as you're thinking, oh boy, what's coming here a little bit. Let me tell you a little bit more about our guy Zephaniah. The best way to understand uh, his background is he lives in the mid 600s, mid to late uh, 600s BC. We think he's got royal lineage. He's part of the ruling class. His name is interesting. His name, names always mean something in the Old Testament. His name means the Lord hides which might be his parents' way of suggesting that he's someone that Yahweh has hidden from evil. We don't know for sure. Now, he's also a um, contemporary of a kind of a good king, a godly reformer named Josiah, who had tried to remove a bunch of the idols from the Jewish community from the temple worship. Uh, Zephaniah is a prophet at a time when there's lots of corruption, and from the way the story reads, Zephaniah himself has largely avoided this corruption so he's a loud voice and he's one of those calling for reform now people like Josiah had also been calling for reform and he had some authority so he had some success he got some of the idols out of the square out of the library out of the temple but it looks like he didn't really get the idolatry fully out of the hearts of the people Because secret idol worship is still happening. Secret idol worship is happening in the corners of the community in Judah. And so through the voice of the prophet, God says, I hear it. I see it. You can't do this and and have me not notice. I see it whenever a false god is worshiped. And I'm warning you, there's consequences. There's a price to pay for divided loyalty. So one more time, don't be thinking about anybody else, you know, your spouse or friend or boss or neighbor or whomever. Just think about yourself. Engage on your own. Somebody else might need to hear this, yes, but you probably need to hear this as well. And for some of you, maybe this will be a preventive warning. You know, you're doing reasonably well. You're, you're tender toward God and his spirit. You're open. You're pliable. You're generally attentive to the precepts of scripture and, and the convicting moves of God's spirit. And so you might not feel much condemnation. That's fine. That's great, actually. If this is a preventative message that really helps you make a future decision, that's awesome. But for a few of you, this might feel like an intervention. Maybe you should receive it that way because maybe you've allowed something rotten into your reality. Left unchecked, that thing that you've let in might destroy you, might destroy somebody you love. And so here's the first of three prophetic challenges I want to leave you with this morning. There's three challenges from Zephaniah to you. First is, it has something to do with secret idols and false forgiveness. Be cautious about secret idols and false forgiveness. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, when I say secret idols, um, this is anything that can draw us away from our Heavenly Father. I'm talking about stuff that I will sometimes want to call out when I see it in somebody else, but I sometimes tolerate it in my own life. This is precisely what's happening in Judah. What you have are members of the community holding on to secret loves, Objects of worship which are definitely not God and this is what's breaking God's heart, these affections for something over here. False forgiveness is taking something to God in prayer and confession and then not really accepting grace and forgiveness. I want to show you an example of Zephaniah speaking about both of these issues. He says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah. That's important there, against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place, the very names of the idolatrous priests. So first notice how uh, with God, judgment always begins at home. It always begins uh, with self, that's the starting point internal. Zephaniah has lots to say about neighboring nations. He's gonna, you know, set his sights on some of the people around him, but he starts at home. He starts with Judah. He starts with Israel. That's what's going on when he says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah, my own people, my own family. Now, I don't wanna push this application too far, but it is helpful sometimes for us religious types to just be a little careful about the way we're getting judgy when we start to kind of point our fingers at certain people or certain groups or certain problems in the community we love to condemn things some of us religious people and then not really pay any attention to what's going on here we tolerate stuff in ourselves that we call out in others So here's just an example of God judging his own people first, which is the right order, right? Before we point a finger at anybody else, we ought to take a look, you know, inwardly. And then the prophet says, I'll destroy every remnant of Baal worship. So it looks like on the macro, Baal has been somewhat pushed out. The reformers have done their thing. The public square has been cleared at least a little bit of the objects, the overt objects of Baal worship. But he's not been pushed out entirely. Maybe he's out of the, the, uh, the Agora in County Hall or some of the offices over there, but he's still hanging out in the homes of the people. There's still things going on in the garages and in the back corners and in the bedrooms of people in the community. Even among the community leaders, so you see the idolatrous priests there. That's the community leaders. So the leaders are guilty of this stuff too. In fact, he goes on to say more about the leaders. He says, the very names of the idolatrous priests Those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord, and who also swear by Molech. Now, this is really pregnant here. Um, I'm a little stunned sometimes uh, at how much weight a word like and can hold. There's a lot of weight in the word and here. In verse 5, what you have are people who are swearing by or worshiping and following the Lord, as well as Molech, these divided loyalties here. So Zephaniah is speaking to some people who say, I love God, I love Yahweh, I love me the Ten Commandments. I'm, you know, yeah, I'm all about that stuff. While also maintaining devotion to a false god, an alternative god. And the community people are clinging to three different gods, it looks like. Um, There's three deities mentioned here in addition, two besides Yahweh. Uh, They've also kind of clung a little bit to Baal. Baal is considered a harvest deity. And what I mean by by that is he's considered tied to crops. And so what people are doing is, okay, yeah, I'll follow Yahweh, but I'm also going to, you know, make some sacrifices to Baal because I think that might increase my chances of having a good crops. And so that's what Baal's all about. Uh, Starry hosts in verse five there is probably a reference to a pantheon of gods. They're usually considered gods of nature and beauty. So this is a group of people who are also worshiping Yahweh, then Baal, then also the starry hosts. So they're worshiping nature. They're worshiping the creation, not the creator. And then the darkest part of this whole thing is this this worship of Molech. Molech is um, a god to be appeased, it's a deity of appeasement. So, with Molech, the idea is uh, if I, something bad happens to me, I must have offended Molech and so i have to do something to pay molech back to atone for my mistake or you know something bad happens to me you know randomly maybe molech is just angry or something like that so what people do is they go to a, a certain valley where there's priests of molech who've got fires stoked and you go there and you offer a sacrifice to appease the god molech and here's the darkest part of this in the ancient world sometimes these sacrifices to molech included child sacrifice. Like people would sacrifice their own child to appease this angry God. So when you see some of this stuff um, where God appears to be really mad and upset, uh, I recognize that for some of us that doesn't land well. We think, ah, why is God so angry in the Old Testament? Well, sometimes it's because of stuff like this. It's, it's, this kind of horrific stuff like child sacrifice, that, that should make God mad. And so this is the word of the Lord through the prophet. Basically, I will not stand for this, God says. I will not stand by and watch my people try to appease multiple gods. He will call out their double-minded ways. And then Zephaniah is going to name some specifics. He's going to point out one of the areas that the people are frequently practicing this kind of duplicitous sort of way of of living. And one is with regard to how they handle their businesses and their money and their finances. He's going to describe how the way we conduct our business reveals kind of who our, our gods are. Worship can be faked, by the way, in case you've ever, you know, maybe we do it in here sometimes. We can come into a place like this and worship and raise our hands and, you know, kind of sing and praise and, and act like we're all into worship. But if you really want to know what the true gods are, you know, look at our bank accounts, look at our statements. That's where we really see best evidence of who our gods are. This is kind of how he does this in verse 10. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will go up from the fish gate. This is all commerce language here. So the fish gate is probably a reference to a fish market, kind of what it sounds like. There's whaling from the new quarter, which is thought to be the most desirable part of the community. It's the estates. It's the upscale neighborhood. And a loud crash from the hills. Whale, you who live in the market district, think of that as the people who live near the mall, right? They, or they live downtown. That's where they live. All your merchants will be wiped out. All who trade with silver, those are the bankers, will be destroyed. So again, this is all commerce language. It's all about business and, and money. And the message from the Lord here is don't put your trust in stuff. Don't be crooked. Don't cheat. I'm the only true God. Be the same person that you are in the temple that you are you know, in the marketplace. Be consistent. Don't fake it. Now, one of the ways I think to apply kind of crazy texts like this is just to ask some application questions. And so this is a good time for the first one. I'm going to give you three this morning, three questions to think about a little bit and pray on. First one is this Where are you allowing dangerous compartmentalization? I haven't used that word yet here, but that's essentially what we're talking about here. This compartmentalizing is, is, can be a strength. It actually can be a way of saying, I'll just leave this emotion over here and go over here. There, there's, there's a strength to compartmentalizing, but there's a danger to it. And the danger is tolerating something you know is damaging to you or someone you love, keeping God at a distance, and then maybe even calling out the same thing in other people. You know what I'm saying? This... this, this unhealthy compartmentalization. This could be a warning to you. So let's talk about a second challenge. This one will be a bit shorter, I promise you. Everybody doing okay, by the way? Need anything? Thank you for that. Need a coffee? Water? Hot towel? Anything? You good? All right. If you need something, go get it. Anyway, hang in. Uh, The second challenge from this prophet, as best I understand, has uh, something to do with classic spiritual disciplines and practices, and you're going to go, whoa, that seems like a weird uh, shift here, but I I think it's here. Uh, Multiple biblical authors, not this, you know, the prophets like Zephaniah, they talk about uh, these classic disciplines, the means of grace we talk about sometimes. Spiritual practices like the gathering, corporate worship, church, generosity, uh, Sabbath keeping, scripture, meditation, prayer, all, all those classic disciplines, solitude, Now I'll support my claim on this one biblically in just a couple of seconds, but I'm gonna uh, do a little exercise here. I'm just gonna do something in front of you that I recently did in in the hopes that maybe you'll do the same. And it's a real simple exercise. It's just to assess how you spend your time. What What are you doing with your time these days? I don't know if you've done anything like this where you literally take out a piece of paper and you write down kind of the major things that you typically do over the course. Of a week or a day, uh, or maybe take out a, a, an app, you know, a note app, and just kind of write down. Here are the ways that I spend my time. I think this is a really healthy exercise. I, I saw a pastor named Kurt Harlow do this recently, and I thought I'm going to do this. And so I did that as well. So here's how I generally spend my time. I'll just do this in front of you. Number one, I spend time with Corrine. I enjoy my wife. We enjoy having fun together. We like to go out to eat. We like to go out to lunch. We like to go to. We started going to as many Vietnamese restaurants as we could a few years ago. That translated over into Thai now now we're on a Korean kick. So we just kind of have our favorite genre. We're kind of doing that kind of stuff. We just got back from a two-week vacation. I love hanging out with my wife. I love hanging out with our adult kids. I can't get enough time with them. So when we have our adult kids around our table and have our, our Sunday night dinner parties, that's just one of our, our, our big, big deals. We love that kind of stuff. During the week, I do a lot of meetings. Um, in fact, I would say that most of my work kind of comes down to two things. I do meetings and I write talks. That's kind of my job As I do meetings and I, I do stuff like this. I spend a lot of time responding to email as well, but that's kind of the bulk of my week. I do a lot of work. I spend a lot of time at work and I have some volunteer roles that I play as well, especially with first responders in our community. Most weeks, Karine and I have you know, two or three social events. We're having lunch with friends today. Uh, we do that you know, a couple times a night. So there's lots of that kind of thing. I like sleeping. I do sleep a lot. I try to sleep a lot. I like to eat. I like to eat a lot. I like to eat more than I like to sleep as you can probably. Anyway, I do that kind of stuff. I rarely skip either one of those, eating or sleeping. Uh, I'm, rarely, uh, I'm pretty consistent with exercise. Um, during the pandemic, I bought a Peloton bike, and I really, really like it. In the last two years, I've done over 300 rides on my Peloton bike, including a 47-day stretch I had from late October till mid-December I was only interrupted by my mom's passing. That's what kept me uh, from my streak, but I started a new one as soon as I got back from her funeral. That's part of my daily routine. Other daily activities include things like, you know, scanning Twitter and other social media, uh, watching the news, checking out the news, scrolling through the news. Every night, I grind the coffee beans and make the coffee. It's my nightly little ritual, which is all part of my nightly routine of cleaning the kitchen. I don't love cleaning the kitchen. I like having cleaned the kitchen. I like how it looks. I like how it feels. So that's just part of my routine. I'm an obsessive toothbrusher. I brush my teeth at least five or six or seven times a day. My dentist has told me, you brush your teeth too much. I can't stop it. I must brush my teeth. In the summertime, I have some good hobbies. I have golf. I have motorcycles. I don't have a good winter hobby. I've been looking for one. I've been playing with different options. I won't tell you some of the things I've been thinking about trying. Uh, Some of them include gambling. Anyway. I watch probably 50-plus Oilers games a year. I do. I'm a sucker for that kind of stuff. Most of them on PBR. I fast-forward my way through. But I I don't miss many Oilers games. Corrine and I have watched every episode of The Office at least five times. Uh, We just kind of keep cycling back and forth, and it's one of those, if you just want to watch an episode of The Office, sure, because it requires no thinking or no thought, a little chuckle, 20 minutes, you go to bed. We do that stuff all the time. We have Disney+, Plus, we have Netflix, we have Amazon Prime. Somehow we have all of those, and we have a PS5. We do. The old people have a PS5, and our kids think, you don't deserve that, Um, (laughs) because we don't get it, and we don't use it enough. Here's my point okay? Sorry for that little self-indulgent rant there. Here's my point. My life is busy. Your life is busy. Everybody's busy. But here's the deal. We all make time for what matters most. To us, we all find time to do what we really want to do. So are there, this is the second application question, are there any adjustments that you could make to how you're spending your time so that you can put God first. Are there any adjustments to be made with how you're living? I don't know any serious follower of Jesus who doesn't engage in the classic disciplines at least a little bit. I'm talking about, you know, scripture meditation. I'm talking about prayer and worship and confession and journaling and intentional community, that sort of thing. How could you make a little bit more time to be faithful for the to the God that you claim to love, many of you. Like, we, we ought to be able to do this. Look at the words of the prophet in chapter 2. Uh, at least in this example, he does appear to be a, addressing one practice, classic practice, and this one is corporate worship, Christian community, the church. He says, gather together, gather yourselves together, you shameful nation. Now, the original language, uh, the, the word translated gather, um, is historically thought to include the idea of like straw and water and other natural ingredients um, smashed together to form bricks. That's the picture here. The idea is uh, alone or individually, we don't amount to much, but when we come together, there's, there's strength. Um, we build things we are more resilient. We're stronger together, which is, uh, again, a picture of what the church can be and should be. It should be this, this gathering together to, to help each other, to, to strengthen each other, and to do building in the community. And then there's the shameful nation part. The way shameful is translated in the English part, it, it, it appears to be sort of a you've lost the ability to blush, so the picture that's being uh, given here is that of sinning so much that you don't even, you're not even embarrassed anymore. Like it's just, I don't even care. I'm just going to do what I want to do. That's what Zephaniah is calling out. He continues, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands. And then he says, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. So how does a person of faith seek the Lord? Well, pretty much the same way we have for centuries. Spiritual disciplines, sacred practices, obedience, connection. And specifically, there's a couple things that we should seek here, according to the prophet who's writing you know, this poetry. Uh, as a literary device, when you see repetition, that's by design. That is a point of emphasis. So there's several things that are... Uh, a challenge to us to seek, seek the Lord, seek the Lord, which means go after the God who's your God, who go after His nature and character, His wisdom, His direction for you. This is about more than head knowledge. This is you know the pursuit uh, of of your God. This is seeking righteousness. Uh, unless we're followers committed to Jesus in his way, in his teaching, obeying what he says that we're about, you know, if we're not doing that, maybe we're just fooling ourselves a little bit. The way you experience God should impact the way you spend your time, the way you love, and the way you give, and the way you serve. And I can take this one step further. We all know people who claim to know God, and at least on the outside, kind of act like they do, but they lack this one other quality, which is humility. Humility is Self-differentiation, selflessness, it's the opposite of self-righteousness. So seek humility. So I said I'd leave you with three application questions. The first was, is there some way that you're allowing dangerous compartmentalization? The second one was, you know, are there any adjustments you can make to how you're spending your time in order to put God first? The last one is just the simple challenge, what spiritual practices could I employ Is there something you used to do that you just for whatever reason stopped? It maybe used to be a really meaningful part of your spiritual life, but you just it just sort of drifted. Maybe you you used to read. maybe you used to read in an actual Bible, and maybe it's the devices that have stopped you from meditating on the scriptures. Maybe it was You know, some sort of place you went to be alone in solitude and and prayer and, and private worship. I mean, when's the last time you actually, with a writing instrument, like a pen, remember those? And a pencil, and you wrote out a prayer or wrote something in a journal. It is not too late to recapture some of those lost practices and loves. All right. I'm about done, but before I wrap this up, I want to make sure you hear one final point because it's easy with a book like Zephaniah to just read the beginning and not get to the end and sort of check out early because it's, it's filled at the beginning with all of this railing and condemnation and challenges and wrath of God stuff. It's essentially for two chapters, God saying over and over, no soup for you, no soup for you. But at the start of chapter 2, he he starts to say maybe there's a a shred of hope. If you gather together, seek me, seek righteousness, seek humility, there might be a way forward. And then as chapter 3 unfolds, it gets kind of good. Because God speaks through the prophet and shows us the whole picture. So again, don't check out too early. Near the end in chapter 3, despite all of the descriptions of God's burning judgment and wrath... It's not described as destroying anybody. In fact, the whole purpose near the end, and this is overwhelmingly affirmed by all the commentators, is that this is a purifying act here. This is, a, this is all about purifying and reforming, and this is the, the goal in Jerusalem. Here it is in, in, in chapter 3, verse 9, that I will purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. It's a grand vision of a unified group again. All the peoples, all means all, everybody, divergent people from different tribes and nations coming together as one. All of them. That's what's being described here by the prophet. This is a call for all races and language types and color to come together as one. And look, they're not just like hanging out together, they're actually working together, shoulder to shoulder. That's language of work for the common good. And the last verse I want you to see is is verse 14 of chapter 3. Because against all of this doom and gloom, you get this little gem here. And it looks like this is the prophet's way of saying when we hear the warning of God, when we respond to it, and we refuse complacency and we seek God in community and pursue him and obey his commands, here's what happens as a result. Sing, daughter Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. So in the middle of this uh, 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 text, there's this image of, of people joyous and happy and upbeat and worshiping. This, this is a description of uninhibited joy, singing, praising, not holding back, no care in the world about what anybody else is thinking or doing. And when's the last time you worshiped like that? Just unreserved. Well, our God is worthy of our worship. He loves to warn us. He loves us enough to warn us about the dangers of complacency. And then paints this picture of unbridled enthusiasm that can be ours. So yeah, it's a strongly worded prophetic call to repentance, but in the end, it's, it's hopeful, which is why I ended up liking Zephaniah when I was kind of predisposed to not liking him that much. Yes, it's intense, and yes, there's language here that ought to jolt some of us, but in the end, the prophet is inviting us to something. He's saying, don't be like the wine that grows rotten, got something better for you. So if you ever find yourself kind of recoiling from the wrath of God stuff in the Old Testament and and sort of reject that and kind of get uncomfortable, remember, look at these texts as God's warnings, which are acts of love. The language might be difficult to hear, but God wants you to understand the danger of complacency as well as his eternal optimism. It's never too late to come back to him. So let's pray here at the end. Let me just uh, pause. I'm gonna invite our, our team members, our worship team. They're gonna lead us with a response song. I, I, there's a perfect song for this, so we're gonna do that together. But let's pray for a second here, and I'll just pause and allow you to, to think about those three questions. Where are you allowing dangerous compartmentalization? Are there any adjustments to be made for how you're spending your time in order to put God first? And are there any spiritual practices that you could employ for the first time or maybe for the first time in a long time? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would allow me and the rest of my friends in this space to see this as a warm invitation to something that is best for us, not a harsh critique that draws us away from you. Father, you are a a God who invites us into the best kind of life. And I pray that we would respond to your invitation and take you up on your word and seek you in humility. So meet us in these moments as we continue to pour out our hearts in worship. Move us and shape us. May we respond to your promptings of your spirit. In your name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. If you're able and willing, why don't you stand with our worship team and let's respond together.